This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 30th, 2023. I'm Scott Lonebone. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have a few new bills in the BC legislature, but more interestingly, a federal budget with money. Money is always fun to talk about. Uh, speaking of money, patreon.com slash politicos. Give us some with uh, your new grocery rebate money. It doesn't say you have to spend it on at Loblaws. You could spend it on us. Let's start here in BC. The legislature's back in session for the second half, I guess, of the spring half of this year sitting. The NDP government has introduced four new bills. The first is a change to the Family Law Act. This is a pretty widely supported one. I saw the BC Liberals endorse it as well. Basically dealing with what happens to pets during a divorce or separation. Uh, BC's Family Law Act, for those who've never looked at it, is one of the most uh, advanced or progressive in the country, depending how you view it. Um, it, you know, recognizes that not all families take the same shape and form. But one of the challenges that has come up is when people get divorced, animals are still treated as property in Canadian law. And so what this does is says when a divorce happens, the pets need, there are certain considerations for how pets should be, uh, apportioned following the separation, you know, take into consideration the relationship who will care for it the best and not just like who bought it and spent the most on it or stuff like that. So it's a positive step that animal rights activists are super happy to see and good for the cats and dogs and other pets out there. Indeed. Uh, the other bills are less fun, but you know, important in different ways. There's a bill around money laundering, dealing with foreign exchange services. I'm not going to pretend to know much about what that's doing. Uh, there's a bill to create a uh, public beneficial ownership registry for private business ownerships. Uh, we already have the real estate uh, ownership registry, but that doesn't tell us who owns numbered companies. So now we're going to have a registry to tell us who owns the numbered companies in this province, and that will help uh, increased transparency of ownership of things like that. And finally, dealing with organized uh, money laundering and crime, the unexplained wealth orders have come through that were also promised and recommended by the Cullen Commission. Yeah, it's something David Eby's been talking about for quite a while, so not a surprise to see it uh, come forward. The basic idea here is if you have assets that are, uh, you know, worth a lot of money, fancy cars, uh, property, other things, and you can't explain to the police or the civil forfeiture office how you came into possession that of that, like, hey, I only make $10,000 a year, but here's my Lamborghini. Uh, they could pursue uh, a seizure of that, presuming that it's based on organized crime. Yeah, so like the Colin Commission show, there was... There are definitely spots where we could improve our uh, money laundering and anti-organized crime approaches. 
Nevertheless, I'm not super stoked on these, mostly because they seem to reverse the burden of what would normally be the case. You know, like it should be up to the government to prove that, uh, you know, a crime was committed rather than the other way around. Prove that you legally are entitled to own all of these things and not that the government has to prove you stole them or unlawfully obtained them. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see. Well, it's how not long even it unlawfully takes. obtained them. It's like you have to. Pr- um, it's not that they have to prove that you stole it. It's just the case of uh, that the funds were come mm. from somewhere right. else. So, like, e- even if you show the receipt of like a lawful purchase, if they then they can you know go after the uh, the source of those funds and like it's just moving the burden elsewhere. But like, it still has it resting with the individual rather than the state to prove it, and that's. I don't think ideal from a you know, basic justice point of view. Yeah, we're going to see a charter challenge on this at some point, presumably, because, you know, it's already happened with the BC government fighting the Hells Angels and over uh, civil asset forfeiture. And some of those things have gone back and forth all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I don't know offhand where it has landed, but, you know, it's what they've committed to trying to do. So here's the bill. And I think it'll have pretty widespread support in the BC legislature. So all of this will probably move forward pretty smoothly. Outside the legislature, an interesting story came up for the Ministry of Health. I guess I'm not on this corner of TikTok, but there is a corner that is following celebrity culture and weight loss. And apparently this drug called Ozempic, which is largely used for diabetes in BC and in Canada, uh, people are trying to use it for weight loss because if you take it in higher doses, it mimics uh, an obesity drug. And at this point, because of these trends, and uh, a few other things, 15% of the sales of this drug in BC are going to Americans, which is a lot. Uh, So the health minister, Adrian Dix has announced that he's going to start rationing the sale of it to Americans, and try to make sure that we have enough of this drug for Canadians with type 2 diabetes. What's really fascinating here is it seems like most of the drugs are being sold from two pharmacies in Metro Vancouver that aren't named and 95% of the subscriptions are being 95% of the prescriptions are being written by a doctor or doctors in Nova Scotia. And the College of Physicians in Nova Scotia is eager to hear from BC outside of media reports because apparently that's how they learned we're mad. Yeah, so like that's all super sketchy. Kind of weird though that the information made its way there via media reports and not someone in the ministry, you know, sending an email to the uh, Nova Scotia College of Physicians. Um, but yeah, that doesn't seem to be entirely on the level. Yeah, it's a weird situation. Like, I credit to the BC government for acting quick on this. I would usually be a little bit worried when. Uh, healthcare gets restricted, but I can see the the purpose here and like the focus of this drug isn't on off label usage; it's on you know diabetes yeah, although, patients. So, hmm. hey, obesity is a significant uh, public health problem and impacts the health of a lot of people. And to like to the extent that these drugs are useful and can be prescribed off label to help with that, like there's a an argument to be made that uh, this would in fact be denying beneficial health care. Now it's 
I gather a large part of this is that these are cheaper here than in the U.S. So like there, there's a subsidy question involved, like whether we should be subsidizing Americans' uh, use of it. But like, I don't think you necessarily just wave away the access to medical stuff point you raised. Sure. Yeah. It highlights in the article that Pharmacare in BC does subsidize this drug. So it is cheaper in BC pharmacies in Rexall than it is at, what is it, CVS in the US. So I understand why they're coming here. But yeah, drug tourism is a real challenge. Finally, our last BC story uh, is our perennial favorite other party that you know, it's the little party that keeps trying the BC Conservatives. They've had their leadership race. Uh, I think it's already over uh, with John Rustad launching his bid uh, with a bevy of attacks on, you know, how woke the BC Liberals are, among others. Uh, and as of, I think it was a day or two ago, the deadline for applications had closed. And I think he's the only one who put his name forward. So the May 28th vote which is also super soon, is not going to be moving ahead. And uh, they had one of the fastest leadership races in this province in a while. You mean you don't need like 18 months of its cruciatingly drawn out uh, leadership race to decide who to run a party? And you don't need like an upstart outsider to threaten the, you know, fundamentals of your party to then move to a disqualification that leads your whole party into an internal battle that you didn't want um you can just yeah have have just one mla and make them your leader what what surprises me here actually is that i had thought someone like aaron gunn who famously was re ejected from the bc liberal leadership race yeah that description you just gave till about halfway through to have applied to aaron gunn yeah and john rustad is like the old, less interesting Aaron Gunn. Like, Aaron Gunn doesn't have a seat in the legislature, but, I don't know, Rustad doesn't have the same energy, and maybe that's good for people who don't want to see the reactionary uh, pro-convoy movement uh, have as much of a, a public voice in BC. But, you know, Rustad's moving forward, I guess, as the leader of the new, or as the new leader of the BC Conservatives, and here we are. We've already talked about them too much at this point. Let's jump into the federal budget for our main chunk of the show. Budget 2023, a made in Canada plan, strong middle class, affordable economy, healthy future. That's a mouthful of a title. Yeah. Remember when the liberals were good at like comms and branding? Or at least better? It's, you this know, like, they're getting tired. Yeah, no, this is government itis written all over that uh, title. So overall, this is an increase in spending. There's a little bit more revenue in here, and a few other ways they try to not like massively increase the deficit. But uh, this is not a you know you mean, uh, quick pathway to balance. Freelance. This is going to be a restrained budget thing. Didn't actually come to pass. We'll get to that in a bit there is a bit of that but i think the necessity of upholding the deals they made with the ndp and i guess a reluctance to bring in significant new revenue streams or taxes to be blunt uh 
leaves them here, which is with a $43 billion deficit this year. That's up from the, I think it was like 36 or 37 billion in the fall fiscal update as what it was predicted. Uh, and they're, they are predicting decreasing deficits down to 14 billion by 2027, 2028. Um, these are still only like one and a half percent of GDP and declining to less than one percent. So marginal in the grand scheme of things, except for those who really, really want to see balanced budgets all of the time. Though it is notable that like none of the liberal uh, we're going to be taking a more sustainable fiscal track stuff has actually ever really panned out. It seems to be like a net steer thing and just is always one or two years away in the budget. Granted, a pandemic came in the middle of True, but it's not like so the non-pandemic times uh, had that either. So let's talk about the spending in this first, and then we can talk about some of the savings. I didn't actually put notes in here about the taxes because they are like relatively trivial. Uh, the big headline, and almost all of this was leaked in advance because I guess they didn't care, is a what they're calling the grocery rebate. This is just checks for people. Uh, it'll range from $234 for uh, people like yourself who are single without kids, although I assume you might be above the income thresholds they're going to put in place. Yeah, do we actually have a dollar value on that? I couldn't see it. They say they're targeting 11 million households, which is something like 70 or 80% of the households in BC or in Canada. So, or did the math. It's like 73, but I'm presume there's a rounding error in that and it's like actually going to be the 75th percentile they're targeting and i think there's also going to be a roll-off in the benefit like the specific details are not in here uh if you are a couple with two kids which is my household you'll get up to 467 dollars which you know these are checks that don't hurt but like john horgan gave me a thousand bucks so like come on you got more fiscal capacity than that christian freeland they're being stingy is what I'm saying. If you're going to cut checks for people, I also like, I don't understand the non round numbers. Yeah, I'm not sure either. The total cost of that is two and a half billion dollars. That's probably where the round number came in. Like they've picked their like top level number. And like when you did the math, it came out to some like 234 is just the number that came out of it. And. This is going to be delivered with the GST tax credit, which is a pretty smart way to do it since that already flows into most of the people who would be uh, recipients of this. So yeah, use your $467 or less to, what is that? Like, that's like two to three grocery shops for me. So stretch out a little more for me, but like, yeah, it's uh it's not going to like replace one's food budget, but you know, it's a bit that helps and like it's bigger than the GST rebate is. The other big thing that will help a lot of people is the serious moving forward of the dental care promise that the Liberals and NDP agreed to in their supply and confidence agreement. Rather than just another weird apply for it check system that they did last year. We are going to have the actual program rolling out, it sounds like, in full, almost right away. Uh, this is going to cost $13 billion over five years. This is a significant increase from some of the previous estimates of what it would cost. And then it'll be four and a half or $4.4 billion ongoing. It'll be the Canadian Dental Care Plan. This will target uninsured households with income under $90,000. 
and there'll be no co-pays for those households that earn under $70,000. Uh, it's going to be administered directly by Health Canada, quote, with support from a third-party benefits administrator. So we're going to have some kind of uh, RFP for a private insurer to get a really juicy government contract here. And then there's also going to be another $250 million over three years to establish an oral health access fund to provide extra support for the most vulnerable vulnerable populations. This is what was promised. It's good to see. Uh, I could, I've critiqued it in the past, but dental care is a huge issue. Yeah. Although, like, once again, with, like, where they're setting the, the cutoffs, I'm sort of wondering, like, at some point you're going to get in, like, that, like, 70 to $100,000 range. Uh, it kind of bit more of a steeper like effective marginal tax rate jump than probably's ideal on that they're like everything cuts off around the same level yeah i mean one of the things here is people in that range some of them start to get covered and more and more like if you have a household where you're earning 110 to 120 thousand dollars you probably have one person who has private insurance uh, and they probably have a good sense of those numbers. Now, yeah, there's still people falling through the cracks, and that's my big critique of this. Why not just make it universal? Is it that much more? Um, but this will help. Yeah, but a like lot even of with private insurance, like you're, it's in, it's part of the total compensation package. So like it comes out of the paycheck just in a different way. Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, notably, Quebec has already been Quebec about this program and says, uh, just cut us a check. We already, we already have something like, uh, instead of spending all of this, how about you give us $3 billion over five years and we'll just keep doing what we do. Is a, a very bad way to go about it. I mean, like, I don't know what Quebec's dental program is. I'm assuming they do have something. They have more social supports than most other provinces. So like it's somewhat justifiable because otherwise why wouldn't they just abolish their program um so i get their argument it's just always funny to see it come forward like bc has some dental coverage for low-income uh people maybe we should get some money too it does highlight the like challenge of the federal government bringing in a program that would traditionally be administered by the provinces uh, it's like isolate very squarely within provincial jurisdiction if one's going to be you know formal about it it's an insurance plan they're not providing dentistry some point that becomes a distinction without a difference uh continuing on in health, similar healthcare section it's i'm pretty sure it's just the previous almost 200 billion dollars for healthcare that was announced earlier this year the additional funding through the canada health transfer measures and the deals that have been made but they're you know, pumping it up again because it's a lot of money and, you know, it goes to the demands the premiers have been making for a while and it seems like all the premiers are bought in. So there's money in here for healthcare and they are officially approving it. The next, No real surprise there. Yeah. The next big section of the budget gets into the green economy and climate. Uh, I guess there was like three major focuses they wanted to do. Uh, healthcare, affordability, and the climate. And then there's a number of other measures that we'll get into. Uh, in the climate issues, a lot of it is tax credits to uh, industry. Uh, there's no new like 
you know, tax credit for homeowner renovations. There's no new incentives to buy electric vehicles. A lot of those are already in place and they're working as much as they want them to. Uh, the big focus here is on clean power, I would say. So there's a 15% refundable tax credit. That's just cash in the bank for uh, any companies that go into this to invest in renewable or clean power. So whether that's wind, hydro, nuclear, solar, if you build it, uh, you will get 15% back from the government. Uh, this also includes abated natural gas for the time being, uh, building basically battery systems that aren't run on gas or fossil fuels, uh, and transmission lines, power lines. Well, I'm I'm happy to see nuclear included in there and actually get some more recognition for it being a pretty clean method of generational things considered. The cost of this is expected to be six point three billion over four years, and then between twenty twenty eight and twenty thirty five another nineteen point four billion. So this is a sizable chunk of investment. Of course, it does rely on companies to take the government up on that, but this probably changes the, you know, break even the ROI lines for a lot of companies to start doing a lot more. So I hope that this is a positive way to do it. I know there's some critique, then maybe we'll get into this in a future show on tax credits versus direct investment. But speaking of direct investment, there's $20 billion here from the Canada Infrastructure Bank split evenly between their clean power and green infrastructure priorities. So that infrastructure bank will be investing a whole bunch of money into clean power and green infrastructure projects. So, so a uh, 30% refundable tax credit for new machinery and equipment to manufacture clean tech and extraction and processing and recycling of critical minerals. It's expected to be a $4.5 billion cost over five years. Uh, plus six point six billion uh, for the uh, years from two twenty twenty eight to twenty thirty five. The budget also talks up the first major uh, gigafactory for batteries in Canada. This will provide power for or the batteries for a lot of EVs in the future as they get built. This will be in Saint Thomas, Ontario. It's getting funding from the feds. It doesn't say how much, but it was a deal announced very recently by Volkswagen subsidiary power co uh -huh. so we're just like everyone's just going with the elon musk branding on battery factories then i guess i mean all tech stuff kind of falls into the same name scheme if you build a social media platform you end it without with like an r instead of an er it's that kind of stuff uh there's a number of well, other subsidies in here for hydrogen biofuels carbon capture it's pretty broad um we'll have to i haven't managed to look at enough reactions to see how this is gone over but it's you know it's a positive step there's mon big money here yeah I expect a lot of this is also driven as a response to the uh u.s's inflation reduction act so that was kind of the big concern coming out of that is whether we would be cost competitive with a lot of their subsidies which on one hand is like not ideal that we're like each trying to you know on a competitiveness trying to like race to subsidize our own industries but since we're trying to also incentivize a mode change on it, there's less harmful than otherwise would be as a economic policy. I am definitely far more in favor of this like green energy arms race with America than the like 
tax cut race we've often seen as a race to the bottom. Like, yeah, there are possibly different and better ways to do it. But if that's what it takes to move us, so be it. It's, you know, quite the contrast over the history of the Trudeau government from being the one that's in theory ahead of the US on climate issues to now we're trying to catch up. It's been quite the almost decade. There's a lot more in this budget. A lot of it's just a lot of small stuff. So we'll like power through on the affordable on the affordability section. There's a talk about cracking down on junk fees. These are the fees you might pay for roaming on cell phones or concert fees. Ticketmaster was really flagged. This is another thing that's very hot right now in the US. Uh, baggage fees from your airlines. There's uh, no actual. Listen. Yeah, just size yeah, on man, all of I those. Mean, yeah, I miss when you used to just like have a checked bag as part of your standard airfare. It's dumb they remove that. Or the worst I saw is that like now some budget airlines are like charging you for a carry on bag, which is ridiculous. I I think I remember one airline in the in Europe that would give you a checked bag for free, but charge you for carry on. What? And that makes no sense. No, like, because carry on slows people down. So if right, people don't have carry like not, on, they can load the plane faster and move faster. But you're also not paying someone to like put the bag in the plane, so they're that person's already hired. Because there's always going to be some luggage. So if you can move your plane faster, you can make more money. But regardless, the point being cut down on these fees, there's no actual like legislation here. The government is just committing to work with regulators and industries to fix things. Right. And because, which is, you know, how we all now have very, very cheap cell phone bills. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely skeptical of that approach, though I will flag that. They have also said in here that they are lowering credit card transaction fees for small businesses, and that was purely done by pressure on Visa and MasterCard. Like They didn't pass legislation. They just noted in the budget that the two major credit card companies agreed to cut their rates for small businesses, which is a good thing. I mean, they could also just force them to, but I guess the fear there was they would destroy their loyalty programs and their, you know points systems so those have been preserved i mean that's good for me as somebody like always pays my credit card off on time and uses those points maybe not to like their maximum advantage but uh definitely takes advantage of them yeah same for me uh other thing i think we're both happy to see in here is automatic tax filing is being expanded right now there was like a pilot project that a few tens of thousands of people were on it's going to be expanded to two million low-income canadians Although it sounds like it's not pure automatic tax filing, it's more like you call in and answer like some basic questions and then they go, all right, your taxes are filed, which is better. Yeah, but like, that's still only 2 million Canadians. That still leaves a lot of Canadians mm -hmm. who the CRA already has all of their tax information. There's no reason they can't pre have those automatically filed and yeah, send you a little notice and march with a hey this is what we think you owe tell us if it's right or not and if it's right that's just it a lot of countries have already solved this problem yes th th this is yeah not some like new bit of innovation that canada has to spearhead this is a policy that we're just lazy and not willing to do and there's additional money in here for uh students by raising the Canada Student Grants, uh, $813 million for this package. Uh, 
the interest-free loan limit's going to be increased, and they're going to waive credit screening for mature students who are applying for a loan, which apparently was something that they were doing. You know, you couldn't get a loan to go to college if you had bad credit in this country. Uh, huh. Yeah. I mean, I get like the not wanting to give people with bad credit loans if you're like a private institution. But yeah, I suppose it is weird that um, with like no credit history, you can get a lot of student loans. Yeah. So yeah. And people who are going to university, especially as mature students, are definitely trying to improve their, you know, status in life and their, you know, economic prospects. So it seems like a reasonable investment for the government. And even if it's not, they're trying to encourage people to go to university and maybe you just eat some of those bad loans. Um, housing, it was flagged in the budget, but damn, it's disappointing. You mean the uh, tax-free home savings account, which I believe was a thing from the last budget, was it not, is now being implemented. Cool. Yeah, you can open that on uh, April 1st, a couple days from now. Uh, there's going to be a code of conduct to protect existing mortgage holders. Uh, this is basically just them working with the banks and lenders to make sure people don't get screwed out of their houses. I guess that's good for me uh, as a mortgage holder. <laughs> it doesn't make housing affordable. Uh, they are also allowing the National Housing Co-Investment Fund to redirect money from the repair stream to the construction stream. So there is some money for house building in here, but not directly. Nope. Uh, there is $4 billion over seven years for the urban, rural, and northern indigenous housing strategies. Um, that's promising, but it's... Not it's, a lot, would you like? Yeah, not much. Yeah, over seven years... Yeah, like four billion dollars, even if it was all spent in one year, doesn't actually build all that many new homes. Just disappointing. Maybe next year we'll solve the housing crisis. I'm not holding my breath on that one. Uh, jumping to other things in this budget. Speaking of crises, there's uh, almost three hundred sixty million dollars over five years to renew the Canadian Drugs and Substances Strategy. That's a spread of money across a number of different initiatives, as well as $158 million over three years to establish a 988 suicide and mental health crisis line. This is something I gather advocates have been calling for for a while, kind of a single number you can call if you're in distress that's not just police, fire, or ambulance, but mental health professionals. And so I think this is a positive thing that feels like could have been done a while ago, but at least it's moving forward finally. Uh, among the random stuff in there, I saw that we are going to start working towards a standard charging port for handheld and laptop electronic devices in Canada. I guess European Union has basically mandated everything just uses USB-C. We're almost there when I look at all the devices I buy recently. Yeah. Other than Apple. Um, yeah, it seems like everything's moved over to USB-C uh, pretty much. Uh, interestingly, the the work laptop I was sent like a month or two ago, like only has USB-C ports on it. Oh, my lot. Yeah. My yeah, laptop's so, charged by USB-C. Yeah. So like I had to, uh, go out actually get like an, a USB, a USB-C adapter to plug in some of my existing stuff. Uh, like just be able to pull, put a memory stick into that. So that was super fun, but yeah, that seems to be where everything's going. Uh, speaking of tech, we're going to invest in space. Yeah, so we're going to be uh, spending $1.2 billion to build a moon buggy or a lunar utility vehicle, to be more technical about it. 
as well as $1.1 billion over the next 14 years to continue the participation with the International Space Station what? up until 2030, which is not 14 years away. Yeah, I, I didn't understand why we're spending so much money into the future for something that's only for the next seven years. I don't know what happens for the following seven years. Maybe it's like decommissioning it, but like even so, that then we should stop be... spending the money. Well, like it costs money to decommission okay. stuff, unless except you know, send it to burn up in the atmosphere, which may be the plan. I haven't actually looked into it recently. Uh, the either way, it doesn't cost a billion dollars to deorbit something. The fun thing with the space investments here is it's confirmed again that we will have a Canadian astronaut on the next series of moon missions which NASA is working on. So space is going to get cool again. It's been quite a while since major efforts to get into space have been out there besides things like SpaceX and the private industry. But I feel like besides, I, mean, I, I get that like Elon Musk is not everyone's favorite person these days, but like besides space sets, it's kind of a hand waving away some like actually very cool improvements they've made in, in space technology but it's all low orbit stuff and or mid orbit stuff I yeah wanna, but like the reusable rocket stuff is like a legit impressive uh bit of technological development that's happened in the past decade fair uh but yeah we're gonna build a truck for space for the moon we like our pickup trucks uh closer to earth we are creating a low cost flood insurance program to the tune of $31.7 million to protect households at high risk of flooding. This is quite pertinent to many British Columbians who have suffered in the last couple of years of flooding and will definitely be an issue with climate change going forward. Yeah, I expect this is not going to stay at uh, $32 million. Granted, they do say that's the stand-up cost, but like, we don't have a national protection program that's subsidized by the federal government. But the U.S. does, and looking at how that thing has played out since it was first established, it is like a classic case study in unintended consequences where homes that are at a very high risk of flooding and prob and can't get flood insurance for very understandable reasons just kept keep getting rebuilt flood after flood in a way that costs the government like huge amounts of money continues to facilitate like bad urban planning and unsustainable development in floodplains and like just overall it's probably done more harm than good uh and if the u.s had just like, when they first brought in their flood insurance program just bought out the properties that uh they started to insure at that time they would have spent less money overall uh and had better outcomes i mean Hopefully, we've learned from that and our program will be... Uh, I mean, it's a low-cost flood insurance program. Like By definition, you are subsidizing a high-risk group to do high-risk activities. Like, Well, but you can, I think you can t create conditions on the payout. Like You pay out... Because the challenge you have is people who live in floodplains uh, like the Fraser Valley where you have farmers and valuable land for that but then their you know house gets destroyed and you say all right well here's how it has to be rebuilt if you're going to be reinsured or you move yeah if they're very strict on that politic like politicians generally aren't super strict when it comes to that stuff so 
don't know. It's if history is any indication, it's likely to end up being another case study in unintended consequences. Jumping over to the federal labor code, there's a number of changes. I think one of the big ones I didn't put in here, I think it's basically anti-scab legislation the NDP was calling for. But what caught my attention was two new leaves for federal uh, regulated workers. Uh, anyone who experiences a pregnancy loss, whether miscarriage um, or otherwise, and the uh, death or disappearance of a child, you will both have options to take uh, workplace leave for those um, traumatic events. And I think that's a pretty progressive and positive thing to see. Um, those are not the kind of things you uh, have happened in your life and then feel like going back to work the next day over. No, definitely not. Uh, there's money for Ukraine in here, as well as a little bit of stuff on uh, foreign affairs. Yeah, so we're going to be continuing. A lot of the stuff was previously announced. Uh, stuff such as $200 million for donations of military equipment. That includes the uh, leopard taints we've sent. Then there's a $2.4 billion loan, uh, $85 million for humanitarian assistance, uh, plus there's a bunch of other spending, like we're spending uh, $606 million uh, to replenish our ammunition and explosive stockpiles and, repl and replace the material we donated to Ukraine uh, on there. Uh, there's also... $38 billion to modernize uh, NORAD and protect Arctic sovereignty. Uh, and then, yeah, like you mentioned, there is also money going towards uh, standing up a public, uh, within Public Safety Canada, a national counter foreign interference office. Uh, interestingly, I noticed that in the uh, text on that, China got second billing to Russia, uh, which is just an interesting note with everything else going on on that, uh, as well as uh, $49 million for the RCMP uh, to expand efforts and uh, have additional investigative resources to protect diaspora communities from foreign interference and harassment. I don't trust the RCMP, but it's where the federal government can put money for that kind of thing. I would almost put the money directly to diaspora groups. You, you do actually need like law enforcement sure. and security resources, like diaspora groups. We don't want to like deputize them to take the law into their own hands on that part for. No, that's not what I was calling for. I was calling to strengthen them. So they're less, they're more immune to interference and pressure kind of situation. I can imagine maybe that I haven't fully thought this out. I just, where the Port of Peak, I was going to talk about this later, but we could just mention like the Mass Casualty Commission from Port of Peak has released its report and it's just damning on the RCMP, not related to um, questions of diaspora communities, but just in how it operates, everything it flagged is like it does everything wrong, basically. So I, I'll just say I don't like the RCMP. There's certainly room for improvement there. To put it mildly. Uh, room for improvement also in our airline industry. We mentioned it uh, previously with the junk fees. They're also, it looks like they're bringing in 
additional things to beef up the sort of passenger bill of rights type stuff uh, to guarantee that you can get uh, refunds if you're rebooked and things like that, or if your flights get canceled that you have recourse. So there's some nice changes there. Um, uh, and finally, in terms of like what this is adding, there's going to be amendment to the Canada Elections Act to establish a federal approach. I'm just quoting this directly from the legislative changes section. Uh, in respect of federal political parties' collection, use, and disclosure of personal information to override overlapping provincial legislations. In other words, the federal government is going to say the Canada Elections Act is going to ignore provincial privacy laws like, I don't know, maybe the British Columbia one that ruled that British Columbians have a right to the data that federal political parties collect about them. Yeah, this seems very focused on giving federal parties that the opt out from our privacy commissioner's ruling on what our own privacy legislation requires. I I am actually sympathetic with what the federal government is trying to do here because it's weird that like a voter in BC has more rights to their data with like the federal liberals or federal conservatives than a voter in Alberta or Ontario. But the Yeah, standardized approach is good. I'm just think they're probably going to be moving things in the wrong direction. Agreed. Or the direction that's most advantageous to political parties on that, which is not the type that I think most people actually want. Yeah. Anyone who's ha ever had to deal with like a dozen phone calls on election day and, and in the lead up. Anyway. Also, notably, this change doesn't deal with money and is being buried in the budget. Yep. Rather than a standalone bill where they'd get yelled at for. So I see what they did here. Uh, it would be nice to see them fix privacy legislation federally. That's been yelled at about a lot. So this budget, as we mentioned, is spending a lot of new money. It does have a few new revenue streams. Um, there's really some taxes. Um, there's a little bit around like the minimum tax that individuals or companies have to pay. There's a tax, I believe, on stock options uh, and pretty much some closing of tax loopholes. But it's nothing that stood out to me as like, ah, here's where they're doing a wealth tax or, you know, otherwise increasing revenue. Like they're changing the AMT rate from 15 to 20 and a half percent to generate 3 billion over five years. Pretty much a rounding error. Uh, they're going to try and start working to implement the global minimum tax that has been worked on by a number of countries. Uh, they're going to, yeah, they're taxing share buybacks, which is two and a half billion over five years of revenue, and then just you know improving the general anti-avoidance rule. So there's not a lot of money in here from their fair taxation system, which like fine, you don't have to raise taxes, but when you increase spending. Uh, you have two options. So the other option they and they did take is they are going to save about a fifteen billion dollars over I think it's four or five years to by reducing spending on consulting and travel. This will be reduced by fifteen percent and save them seven billion dollars for the next five years. Uh, and there's a three percent across the board cut to be in place by twenty twenty six to save another seven billion. And they're going to ask crown corporations to try to make similar savings. Uh, that cut uh, or that reduction is to come without uh, a direct impact on services. Although 
given the state of many of the federal government's services, reducing department expenditures by 3% and asking them to continue to deliver at or above the current levels is a tight Seems ask. unlikely. Yeah, and there's like other stuff in this budget to try to improve Service Canada and the immigration processing, but then you're also asking them to cut. So if anything, the federal government needs to be hiring more people. It took me a month and a half to get my parental leave check. And that shouldn't be complicated because I had a birth certificate for a child. Yeah, there's definitely some room to improve Service Canada. So that's the budget overall. I mean, my main takeaway from this is that this is a what's the least we can do to keep the NDP happy and stay in government for a bit longer. This isn't a we, the liberals want to go to an election budget. This isn't that exciting of a budget. Yeah, it's very much like a mid middle of the term budget for uh, government. There's not even any harsh pills in here. It's just kind of stuff to keep moving on plus the dental program. So there you have it. So moving on to uh, one final quick take to round out the show. Uh, there's a small brouhaha going on in Ottawa as the newly appointed interim ethics commissioner turns out to be an in-law of Dominic LeBlanc, who is a member of the cabinet. Uh, I mostly wanted to highlight this one just because it uh, goes along with the theme of what we're talking about at the uh, start of the budget segment, as well as some of the discussion from previous weeks around the uh, the appointment of David Johnson on this, and that it just seems like the Liberals are kind of in a spot where they have become oblivious to the their own bad optics on a lot of this stuff. Like I, this person was originally hired back in like 2015 under the previous government. I'm sure they are a fine person. Nevertheless, like it's a bad look for the government and one that a government that wasn't like so clearly tired and kind of losing touch would probably not have made. Yeah. So Martin Richard was the senior legal counsel, I believe, to the ethics commissioner and it's unclear to me when she became the sister-in-law to Dominic LeBlanc. Uh, maybe it was after her appointment. Maybe it was before. It is weird that she remained in the office. So this, if you know, if this is uncouth, it was technically uncouth before. Although it's more uncouth now with her being in the top role. But uh, also, CBC notes that Dominic LeBlanc has in the past violated ethics rules. Uh, over his, quote, lucrative fishing license. Uh, that was linked to his wife's cousin. So this is closer? Yeah, but like it's also a bit of a trend. Like, we don't know one way or the other. That story doesn't really say whether or not he recused himself during any cabinet discussions of this. But like, regardless, it's not enough to be like in technical compliance. There also needs to be no perception of a conflict and that's where the liberals just seem unable to perceive it the ethics commissioner really does feel like the kind of appointment that should be unanimous of all parties yeah i mean this is an interim one so maybe there's a special clause there she's only in the job for six months uh but yeah so you know what you're like swinging a miss yeah 
and like particularly when it comes to the ethics commissioner, like it just extra ironic on that front. So yeah, well the uh, the budget is uh, clearly not an election year of budget, and that's probably a good thing because I don't know with, with everything else here, like it's pretty clear that uh, the liberals are in a tired state and are probably not looking forward to the next election. Other than the fact they're going to spend eight weeks or whatever painting Pierre Polyev as uh, extremist courting uh, crypto crank who has no business running the country. Uh, so that'll be delightful. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.